All right, let's turn back to Genesis 21 this morning. It's been a couple of weeks since our last study in Genesis, so let's just take a moment to review where we're at. We were introduced to Abraham way back in chapter 11, who becomes the first patriarch of the promised seed of the woman, Eve, who will eventually come and crush the head of Satan. And God told this man to leave his homeland and go to another land that God would show him. He didn't tell him where he was going. And Abraham obeyed. He arrived in Canaan, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And God then revealed to him that he would give this land to his descendants. So that promise included both a land and descendants, and of course, a future blessing upon all the families of the earth. Now, from that time until we come to Genesis 21, a quarter of a century has passed. Abraham has struggled with his faith, sometimes failing, sometimes showing great promise. He's faced calamity and hardship, some by his own making. He's witnessed God's intervention and protection when he went astray. He has witnessed the downfall of his nephew Lot, who made worldly choices that cost him his home and his possessions, his family, and his integrity. He tried to fill God's promise through his own ambition, and uh, he failed, bringing strife and anguish into his home at the birth of Ishmael. And that was a result of he and Sarah's struggle of faith to believe God's promise to grant them a son, even though they were now past the age of physically having a child. How like us in our journey through life. Even when we become saved, we cannot escape the hardships and the sorrows and the calamity and the tragedy, the struggle between faith and doubt and the flesh and the spirit. But through it all, there's one thing we can always know, and that is, God always keeps his word. Abraham and Sarah are about to find this out in chapter 21. God had visited them about a year prior to this and informed them that the promised son was going to come and even gave the name that they were supposed to call him Isaac, which was a a reminder to them of their response to the word of God when he made that prophecy. They laughed with amazement. They laughed with doubt. They laughed with wonder. And that would permanently remind them of the truth that God does keep his word. So let's discover again how God's promise finally came to fruition. Now, our story falls into three sections. And all of them are are centered on something that God has said or does say. First, we see God's word of promise in verses uh, 1 through 7. That which he revealed 25 years earlier is finally fulfilled, bringing great joy to Abraham and Sarah. 
But then we move into a situation of conflict beginning at verse 8. And we see the need for God's word again, a word of separation. The son of the flesh cannot abide with the son of promise. And finally, we see God's word of comfort and provision that even though Ishmael must be cast out, God fulfills his word to make him a great nation. So let's look at verses 1 through 7, where we see God's word of promise fulfilled. We're told here that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So the Lord visits Sarah. Now, when we think of visiting someone today, we think of going to their house and having a time of fellowship and communion with them. Uh, But that's not the way the word, it conveys itself in the Bible. In God's word, when God visits someone, he doesn't literally come into their home and have a conversation with them. It indicates his coming, though, into life or into circumstances in a way that affects destiny. And he typically visits the world or people with a purpose either to bless or to curse or judge. The Lord visited Sodom and Gomorrah with destruction, but he comes to visit Sarah by giving her the promised son. So he visits her with a great blessing. The Lord always does what he says. Note here in this verse that we read, it indicates very clearly that God keeps his word. He visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And then in verse 2, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So three times it's repeated that what God had said has come to pass. He keeps his word. Now at this point in history, God was not even close to fulfilling the word of the promised seed, but this indicates that he was on the right track. It took 25 years for his first word to them to be completed. But just think of how many years it was going to take before the final fulfillment came about in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It took two more millennia, but God still kept his word. So let's note now the response of God's fulfillment in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. And the first thing we want to note here in verse 3 is that uh, Abraham responds in obedience. So we should respond to God's word with obedience as well. Now the Lord promised that a son would come through Abraham and Sarah. And the text is emphasizing that truth by giving both of their names and the fact that Sarah conceives and bears Abraham a son in his old age. We remember that the Lord previously conveyed to Abraham that the child's name would be Isaac and that all the male children were to receive the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And back then, Abraham could obey the instruction about the covenant. And he and all his household, all the males, 
were circumcised in obedience to God's word. When God um, brought this child now into existence, Abraham continues to obey God's commands. The child is named Isaac, as God said he would. Remember, his name means he laughs. And also, he is in obedience to the command to bring them into the covenant, circumcised on the eighth day. So Abraham could not respond to that part of God's word until the child was born. But as soon as he is born, he obeys the word of God. And whenever we hear the word of God, our immediate response ought to be that of obedience. We do what God says we ought to do. If we fail, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Abraham knew that by experience, as do we. Then we look at the response of Sarah, <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 5 through 7. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So that reminds us again of the miraculous nature of this birth and this fulfillment, which really kind of increases uh, the response of praise. Abraham's 100 years old when Isaac is born. Both he and Sarah at this point in their lives are physically too old to bear children. And God had to, ma- had to make them realize that it was solely his power and grace that the promise was fulfilled. He did not need their help. They had tried through their own scheme to do this, to bring about uh, God's purpose. They failed miserably and brought misery into their home. But now God does what he said he was going to do. And he's able to do that miraculously if need be. So we can never say that anything that is spiritually accomplished in our lives is our own doing. It is God's doing, his gracious doing. It's the work of God in us and through us. And so our only response to what God does ought to be joy and praise. And this is Sarah's response. And the emphasis here is actually on the name of Isaac. Now, Isaac's name appears here a number of times. But then down at verse 6, Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So she's really kind of making a pun on the name of Isaac that means he laughs. When she says here that the Lord has made her laugh. Now remember, when this promise came, she laughed within herself. God heard her, nobody else did. She tried to deny it, but God wouldn't allow her. And now she's always going to remember that occasion where she doubted God and God kept his word in spite of her doubt. And of course, now she's a woman full of faith and and has been for the last nine months. But then she also says that others will laugh with her. And indeed, this was a joyous occasion. So her response is one of great joy and one of great praise for what God is able to do, how he's able to keep his word, even when we uh, don't see how that could possibly be. So do you ever respond to God's word in that way? With joyfulness 
and praise at some new discovery. An answer to prayer. A victory over some temptation or sin. Someone becoming saved. Or God's word being fulfilled in some other way. Should we not rejoice every time we realize God has kept his word again? We should have the same response that Sarah did. Well, it's not long before conflict once again comes into their home and raises the need for God to speak again. And here we have uh, God's word of separation uh, becoming necessary because the son of the flesh cannot abide with the son of promise. <clears throat> and in verses 8 to 10, we see the, uh, the revelation of the issue, the problem, and Sarah's observation as certain things take place. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, this was a very important day because in ancient times, the mortality rate for infants was very high. So if your child uh, was able to grow to the point where he was weaned from his mother, that was an important juncture in life, and it looked like it was very possible they would grow to adulthood. So it was a day of, of rejoicing and thanksgiving, and it was a great feast, uh, perhaps like a, uh, a 16th birthday party, something of that nature that we have today when we, uh, we celebrate the, uh, the, the birth of our own children. And uh, the age here is not given, but historically, Isaac would have been around three. And that means that his half-brother Ishmael, who's really not named in the passage because the author wants to get across the idea that Ishmael is inferior uh, to Isaac as far as the promise of God. So his name is not even given here, although we know who it is. Ishmael uh, would now have been about 16. Uh, The term boy in the Old Testament can talk about anybody who is inexperienced, even if they're older than this. But he's a young man now, and for the last 16 years, it may have been in his mind and that of his mother that he's still going to inherit something from Abraham, his father. There's going to be at least be a share in this, and if he was uh, obstinate, he could even claim, if he wanted to, because he was the firstborn son, that he had a right to inheritance. Of course, uh, he was also the son of a slave, so that would have been questionable. But this is what's rolling around in the mind of Sarah as she sees uh, Ishmael in his relationship to Isaac in verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Now, it's likely he's scoffing either Isaac or the whole proceedings here. And again, this particular term is ambiguous in the Hebrew. It could mean that he was playing with Isaac and he was laughing as they were playing. It can have that meaning. But our scriptures uh, put a different light on it, uh, saying either mocking or scoffing. And it also has that connotation. And it seems that the response of Sarah 
would make us think that this was a negative thing going on. That he was perhaps playing with Isaac, but making fun of him. Isaac might not be even aware of it being two or three years old. But he's mocking him or scoffing him and maybe making even fun of all the big procedures here that are going on. And Sarah sees something wrong. Now, I believe that women on many occasions have greater sense uh, of intuition than men do. A greater perception of things that are going on behind the scenes that are under the surface. And this is what she sees here. She perceives that Ishmael is making fun of Isaac, perhaps mocking the festivities associated with the occasion that marked this young man, this child, as the chosen heir, the promised seed, who stood to inherit everything, not just part of Abraham's estate. And this, of course, involved the promise of the seed, uh, from whom would come Messiah one day. In Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul uses this occasion as an allegory, and the word that he uh, interpreted for the word scoffing or mocking was persecution. So he also took this in a negative way. Now Sarah, as a result of seeing Ishmael's attitude, goes to Abraham and makes a very strong statement in verse 10. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So uh, Sarah and Hagar have not always gotten along, have they? We know uh, from the previous conflict over the birth of Ishmael that Hera, uh, uh, Hagar despised Sarah. In turn, Sarah mistreated her and uh, caused Hagar actually to, to leave the home for a period of time. Now the next generation has come and we see the same type of disparagement and before any harm can come from this, before it goes any farther, Sarah demands the rights of the firstborn, the, the promised seed, uh, aren't going to be mingled with the slave child, so to speak. So again, we have conflict. And in her mind, there's not going to be any controversy about who is the child of promise, who is the rightful heir, the son of the flesh, cannot abide with the son of promise. Now Abraham, in verse 11, is upset about this. Uh, the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. And understandably, we can see why he would be grieved by this. He loved Ishmael. Uh, he was Abraham's first son, although he was not the son of promise. Yet still there must have been a strong bond between him and Ishmael, and he may have felt it was too harsh to just cast them off. Um, so once again, the tension's building here, and God has to intervene with his word. And we see here, then, God's word of separation that the son of the flesh needs to be expelled. 
Now, in the next verses, the Lord reassures Abraham that Sarah is indeed right, and he needs to listen to what she has to say. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, Abraham had listened to Sarah once before. It didn't end up very well. But now God comes and said, well, Sarah is right. Uh, There needs to be a separation here. The two children cannot any longer grow up together. And so he says, listen to her and remember the promise that I've given that the, the future seed is going to be named or called through Isaac. And uh, he also reminds him in verse uh, 13 uh, that he is going to keep his promise in regard to Ishmael as well and make of him a great nation. Uh, nation. So once again, Abraham obeys the word of the Lord. Early the next morning, he took bread, a skin of water, he puts it on her shoulder, presents to her Ishmael, and sends them away into the wilderness. Now, this was really an act of faith on Abraham's part. He could no longer provide for Hagar and Ishmael, God said they had to leave, they had to go out. So that means that Abraham would now have to trust God to keep his word and to keep them safe and provide for them as they leave uh, the estate. Uh, They're separated now from the promised seed, Isaac. And we have to understand that sometimes it's really hard to obey God's directives. It's really hard to do what he says we ought to do. I can imagine it must have been very difficult for Abraham to give up his son, perhaps never to see him again. The Apostle Paul, as we mentioned, used this story as an allegory, portraying Hagar and Egypt as the way of the law instead of the way of grace and salvation. Obedience to the law cannot save anyone because we can't perfectly obey it. Only by trusting Christ as our Savior, as God's promised one who would bring salvation, is is, that's the only way that you can be saved. It's not easy to admit your sinful flesh the things you have done to displease God. But it's necessary to lay those things aside to receive Christ's salvation. Furthermore, once we receive God's gracious gift, we have to struggle with sin and worldliness in the old man. We have to separate from them. We have to give up the things uh, that held us in bondage to our self-pleasure and our selfish ambition and our self-service. The struggle is not easy, and it will never go away, but it's necessary, and God's promises uh, that he will give us the power to do so is what we must rely upon. So there's kind of a, a teaching there that in the believer, there's got to be this separation between the flesh and the spirit, uh, the way of man and the promise of God. But let's get back to our story. 
even though this son of the flesh must be separated from the son of promise, God still is going to take care of him and he's going to keep his word in that situation as well. And verses uh, 15 to 21, we see God's word now of comfort and provision. In verse 15, we're told the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Now, we have to be reminded here of a previous story back in chapter 16 associated with the birth of Ishmael. You'll remember that after Hagar became pregnant to Abraham, Abraham, that trouble brewed between Hagar and Sarah. Hagar disrespected Sarah uh, because Sarah couldn't have a child, but Hagar did. And then Sarah retaliates with harsh treatment, so harsh that Hagar runs away into the wilderness. So this is the second time that Hagar is found needy in the wilderness. You remember that in the first occasion, the angel of the Lord came to her, confronted her, and told her to return to her mistress. And he further promised that descendants would come from her child. He would become a multitude of people. And he gave her the name she was to give to her son, Ishmael, and predicted that he would be a wild donkey of a man. That means he would range free and independent in the wilderness of Canaan. And what occurs here in chapter 21 is really the fulfillment of God's promise to Hagar in the first place, which she was really not grasping in the, uh, uh, the, the calamity she was facing. So God, again, is going to keep his word. And we see here the trial of life and God's awareness of it. Now, it would only have taken a couple of days for that skin of water uh, to vanish. It probably held around three gallons. And so a couple more days after that, uh, the, the young man, the, the boy, uh, is, is probably uh, facing some serious dehydration and he is suffering, and she thinks the inevitable result is going to be that he's going to die. So she takes him and places him in a shady area, and then she goes off a distance, a bow shot, about 100 yards, where she cannot hear him, she cannot see him, because she cannot bear to see him expire. And while she's there, verse 16, uh, she... um, says, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. The same thing she did on the first occasion. She's crying out. She's weeping. But what's interesting here is that when God God, uh, is aware of this, of course he's aware of everything, it is not her voice that he hears, but the voice of Ishmael says here in verse 17, and God heard the voice of the lad. Now we don't know what he was lifting up with his voice. We know that Hagar was probably wailing very loudly as the Easterners do in that region in that time. But Ishmael also 
is crying out. Perhaps he's moaning from distress. Maybe he's delirious from lack of water. Some believe that maybe he was even crying out to the Lord because certainly in the house of Abraham, he had heard of the Lord many times. But it's not specified here. So at any rate, God heard him. Now, do you remember what Ishmael's name means? It means God hears. God hears. God heard Hagar's cry in the wilderness before Ishmael was even born. And now we find them in a similar situation. And God hears the distress of the boy that he said would be combination. He's near death, but God hears him just in time. And we need to remember that when we pass through times of struggle in a seeming wilderness of trouble or stress or doubt, that he hears our cries as well. And it's, it, 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 at that time, we need to flee to him and put our trust in his word. And then comes in the rest of 17, God's word of comfort and provision for these two people. In verse 17, then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? So previously the angel of the Lord had contacted her. Now the angel of God is speaking to her out of heaven. He can, she can hear his voice. And what does he say that we see so often in scripture? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. So don't be afraid in this situation. I've given you my word. Apparently you've forgotten about it. We don't know if she was calling upon the Lord or just crying in her misery and her grief. But he says, arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. God always keeps his word. This word came 16 years ago. This word had been perhaps forgotten. Or perhaps because of the coming of the new heir, uh, that, that God wouldn't keep his promise and make this child a great nation. But God always keeps his word. And so he says to her, go to him, lift him up, take him by the hand, because I will fulfill my word. He will become a great nation. And then guess what happens? The Lord opens her eyes that are probably stinging with tears and she sees a well of water. Now, God didn't miraculously dig that well and show it to her. It was there all the time. She just didn't see it. And uh, for her, it was a life-saving event and all, a lot of times when we're going through a difficulty, uh, the solution is right there in front of our eyes, but because of our distress, we can't see it. And God has somehow given us the answer in his word, but we haven't yet discovered it. And so he opens her eyes. He makes her see that there's a well of water there all the time. Now I'm going to lead, it, uh, lead you to it. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad 
a drink. So the Lord rescues them in this situation because he always has to keep his word. He can't let his word fall to the ground. The Lord again uh, does what he says he will do. And we see this as uh, time proceeds. So God was with the lad. And he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness. That's where God said he was going to dwell. And he became an archer. So God gave him the skills he needed to protect himself and provide for himself in a land that would be very difficult to live in. But he was able to do this. And he had uh, the freedom. Nobody was ruling him. He was kind of like the wild donkeys that uh, uh, seemed to bray in the... uh, the ears of humanity, because they couldn't be controlled. And it goes on to say, He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the hand of Egypt. So she goes to her own people. She was an Egyptian. And uh, she provides a wife for her son. That probably wasn't the, the, the greatest uh, choice. Uh, but we don't know how things really turned out. We don't know uh, how Hagar, if she called on the Lord. If Ishmael followed the Lord, there's no indication of that. We don't see anything more about them until we come to about chapter 25. And we see that Ishmael indeed has 12 sons. And from uh, those sons develop the nation of the Ishmaelites as God promised. And we don't know if uh, he followed the Lord. Uh, We do know that the Ishmaelites uh, were in conflict with Israel. Uh, through time but there's one possible suggestion and that's when it, it, it gives us the death of Ishmael and it says he was gathered with his people and that phrase in the Old Testament is an indication of life after death you're gathered with your people and it's usually uh stated in relationship to a person who trusted the Lord, like the patriarchs. So perhaps that indicates that although he was not the son of promise, he did believe in Jehovah God. But as we look at this whole context here, this whole portion of scripture, we see again that God always keeps his word. He kept his word to Abraham and Sarah, He kept his word to Hagar and Ishmael. He keeps his word to us today as well. He keeps that word of salvation. Isaac was in the line of the promised seed that would eventually culminate in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he would become the Savior of all those who turn to him in repentance and faith. And he would be the source of our forgiveness and eternal life. Yet sometimes, even when we become saved, Satan comes to us and he challenges us about our sin. And he may bring to mind some sin that we committed in the past and make us feel like we can't be forgiven of it. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, all your sins have been forgiven, past, present, future, even those that have not yet been committed, And we have to remember that God keeps his word. When he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. We need to remember he keeps his word about good eventually prevailing over evil, which we wonder about in our society today. 
We have to remember that the promise that Jesus is coming again, even if it takes another thousand years, God will keep his word and that will definitely happen. God always keeps his word. Then we need to remember what he says about separation. There is a word of separation. We need to separate from worldliness and from immorality, the sins of the flesh, everything the Bible makes clear about the life of the believer. It's not easy. We may often fail, but it's necessary. And he gives us the tools we need to succeed in the struggle. We have to trust God to help us. We have to trust his word and the power of his spirit. And then we always can be thankful for his word of comfort and his word of provision. If the Lord had compassion on Hagar and Ishmael, how much more will he have compassion on us who have come to him for salvation? How often has a word been a comfort to us in times of distress in times of need, in times of fear, in times of trial. He's never really failed us. How often has he proved his faithfulness to us by providing for us in many ways, spiritually and materially? So let's always keep in the forefront of our minds and at the center of of our faith that God always keeps his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for the reminder of this passage that you always keep your word. And Lord, when we realize over and over again that you have kept your word, help us to be like Abraham and Sarah, to be constantly obedient to it, and Lord, to be thankful for it, be full of joy and praise because of it. And Lord, when we come to those times where we again are tempted uh, when we feel the pull of the world, the old man, help us to realize that the flesh is not to overtake the spirit, but the flesh must be put away. The flesh must be overcome. And we do that by obedience to your word through the power of your spirit. And Lord, we pray today you'll help us always to be thoughtful of the truth that you comfort us and provide for us through your word. So we need to be in it. We need to be obedient to it to receive all of its blessings. Lord, uh, bless us with these thoughts today. Help us to keep them with us through the week, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.